0: Uh, welcome, listeners, to the uh, New Books in African Studies podcast. Uh, my name is Paul Bjerk, and I'm here with Julie MacArthur, who is the author and editor of a new volume named Dedan Kimathi on Trial, Colonial Justice and Popular Memory in Kenya's Mau Mau Rebellion, published by The Ohio University Press in 2017. Uh, Julie is with me. Uh, Julie, thanks for being here. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I am Julie MacArthur. I'm an assistant professor of African history at the University of Toronto. Uh, and I've been working in the field for uh, just over a decade now. Uh, I didn't start uh, in Mao Mau history, um, but the uh, the coincidences and, and happenstance of research took me into this area where I ended up working on this project on Dada and Kamathi. Um, which is the subject of this new book.
0: Okay. Um, Well, what were you researching um, that brought you uh, around to Deda and Kimathi and this central issue in uh, Kenyan history? What were you doing prior to that?
1: So my doctoral work and then my first book, uh, which is called Cartography and the Political uh, Political Imagination, um, focused on Western Kenya Uh, And uh, the making of ethnic communities in the colonial period, and particularly the impact of cartography and mapping uh, on uh, how people articulated their identities, how they fought back against colonialism, uh, how they policed their own communities uh, and and sort of projected their own ideas about sovereignty and history through uh, mapping and territorial practices. Uh, And through that work, I was exposed to uh, a lot of different kind of historical themes and questions and figures. Uh, I became uh, very interested in particular uh, in a movement in Western Kenya called Diniyama which is an anti-colonial rebellion um, that uh, uh, emerges in the 1940s in Kenya, particularly in Western Kenya. Uh, So this predates uh, the Mau Mau rebellion. Uh, and the leader of that movement a prophet named Elijah Masinde uh was sort of famously um uh unrecorded his voice his words were never recorded he was a prophet and so uh, uh everything that we knew about him was sort of through word of mouth through what others had said about him and one uh day in the archives i discovered uh his uh the tr- the transcript from his trial uh, and this was a 500-page document uh, where he was speaking into the record. And not only was he speaking into the record, um, but he acted as his own defense. And so he provided this rich archival material that is the only record of his uh, uh, spoken words. They're in the context of a deportation trial, but they, uh, 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 he worked in the judicial system before he launched this rebellion. And so he was very well aware of the fact that this would be one of the only archival traces um, of his voice. And this uh, document, 500-page document, had never been used by a historian because it was l- mislabeled in the archives. Uh, the name was recorded as Merinde. And so other scholars who had worked uh, on Dinia Musambwa or on Alija Masinde had perhaps missed or not found uh, this rich document. And this really uh, fascinated me, and I was very interested in um, this anti-colonial movement and its connections to Mao Mao, uh, its connections to larger policies of colonial counterinsurgency and territorial containment uh, during the 1940s and 50s. And through um, uh, that process sort of became interested in the random stories I was hearing about uh, everyone in Kenya knows the figure of Dedan Kamathi. He, he looms large. His, his image is on all the buses, on graffiti on walls, on T-shirts, so you know about Data and Kamathi. Um, but what I started to hear rumors about was the fact that his trial, which famously leads to his execution in 1957, had never been seen by anyone, by historians, by anyone in the public, by, by very famous politicians like J.M. Kadayuki, who requested the file in 1971, a few years before he's actually assassinated, uh no one had ever seen this this document since his death and so that sort of led me into uh asking well maybe I can just start poking around and looking for it.
0: Cool. So in other words, uh finding your way around the archive gave you a little confidence to track down other missing pieces of that archive.
1: I think what it yeah um, I think what it revealed to me was that uh sometimes we're not asking the right questions uh uh to find the right sources. So, right. Masindi's file being mislabeled reminded me to always look uh, askew or look askance when you're in the archives, not just uh, narrowly focus on what you're trying to find, um, but see, try to look around what you're trying to find. It, 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 there's, there's often richer and more material than we, than we think. Uh, but we often um, uh, sort of shut ourselves off and, and only take certain, um, uh, roots. Uh, although the uh, path to find the, the Kamathi file was uh, a lot more daunting and ended up being uh, 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 a lot longer <laughs> than my happenstance yeah. encounter with the Mumasinde file.
0: Great. Well, I'd like to ask you a couple uh, questions just kind of before we dive into Mao Mao here about uh, the nature of archives and then and also the nature of ethnicity. But let's start with ethnicity. Um, how were people thinking about ethnicity and the construction of community in mid-century British colonial Africa, you know, by according to your earlier research?
1: Yeah, so it's a a very rich and complicated uh, uh, answer to that question um, and certainly varies across the the different landscapes uh, in British uh, uh, colonies in Africa. Uh, What I was really interested in is the ways in which uh, colonial rule Kind of tried to set the terms for how people identified with different communities. So, in the social construction argument uh, around ethnicity, which sees all identities, national, ethnic, as being um, imagined uh, and invented through various processes, uh, within this theory, you uh, the colonial government uh, sets the the terms for how communities can become to be recognized. So, historian John Iliff uh, framed it this way: he said. Uh, that colonial officials believed all Africans belonged to tribes and Africans built tribes to belong. Um, but John Lonsdale, another historian of Kenya, uh, followed up uh, saying no ethnicity, no identity can be invented or warmly shared in a historical void and reminded us to think deeply about uh, not only the process by which uh, people come to identify as a community through writing their histories, through translating their languages, uh, through practicing cultural um, um, rights, but also through these uh, uh, deeper histories and connections that have to be drawn in order to make this kinship real. In the case of Western Kenya, you had a kind of what was always seen as uh, exceptional or sort of not fitting into the usual historical narrative about ethnicity. In Western Kenya, you have a community called the Luya, who are today the second largest ethnic group in Kenya. But as an ethnic group, as one ethnic group, they did not exist prior to the 1930s. No one claims they existed before the 1930s. They do not share one uh, uh, language. They don't share a common myth of origin or ancestor, as many groups do. They don't share uh, one set of cultural practices. And so I was really curious about how this group came to come together in this kind of cosmopolitan, diverse, plural sense of identity. In the 1930s, why they 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 chose to kind of group themselves together and how they sought to uh, uh, make claims uh, on their uh, on the colonial state, but also uh, on their neighbors, uh, in order to uh, uh, discipline their own members of their community, in order to imagine different possibilities for sovereignty and for uh, anti-colonial uh, kind of movements uh, and how they imagine themselves as a people uh, within this period
0: cool so yeah so i mean there's very much a a, a very dynamic um situation in, in kenya at the time of, of people trying to imagine who they are and what they do given the colonial context and what that might mean for their future um go ahead
1: Absolutely. No, the diversity among the Luya, I do want to point out, though, is not actually exceptional in this period. Uh, many people saw them as an exception and sort of didn't think they acted, and still don't think they act uh, like a proper tribe in Kenya. Um, but if you take the case of language, um, uh, missionary linguists who were working and translating the Bible into various African languages at the time, Found just as much diversity uh, among the Kikuyu language as they did among the Luya languages, and so this was a political process that many communities were going through. How do we deal with our diversity and create um, identities that are strong enough to sort of uh, engage with the colonial state?
0: Cool. All right. Um, and you know what you've mentioned on a number of occasions. I mean, this is in some ways at least the way historians in- encounter it. Uh, we encounter it via these colonial archives. Um, Who is saving material and why are they saving material and and what is the colonial archive and what is its relationship to kind of imperial archives and how do we understand what we find in these stores of documents?
1: Absolutely. It's a really important question. Um, I always start by saying that uh, with my students and with uh, 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 other researchers that I'm working with, Uh, that I don't consider the paper archive collected by a state to be the only example of the archives that we have access to. Um, Many of us, including yourself, do oral history, which constitutes another kind of archive. Um, I work a lot with personal archival holdings that people keep in their own houses, in their own homes, um, uh, as well as multiple state and uh, um, non-state documentary trails and also material culture these different kinds of archives uh, have different histories, have different genealogies. When you're thinking about the state archive, obviously this includes the power dynamic of the colonial state, but all archives are partial. All archives contain within them a history of why someone kept certain records, certain ideas, certain memories um, alive uh, uh, about uh, these historical processes. And so there's a process of selection Um, regardless of whether it's a colonial state.
0: So within all this uh, work in archives, and as you mentioned before, you started to ask yourself, you know, how do we look laterally within the archive and and think about what might be either uh, missing or disappeared or deliberately disappeared or masked in various ways? Uh, So tell me how, how it is that when you decided to start looking for Kimathi's trial, what you found and what that what kind of uh, breadcrumbs did you follow until you found it?
1: Right. It, uh, it wasn't a straightforward process. It, uh, it was in the summer of 2008 uh, when I first uh, started uh, looking for the trial. Um, and I had been having tea uh, in Nairobi with uh, two other uh, uh, scholars uh, working on Kenya, uh, David Anderson and Stacey Hind. And they started talking about uh, their experiences in the high court archives, which is now the Supreme Court of Kenya, uh, and uh, how uh, these records are so rich. David Anderson wrote uh, a very uh, um, uh, important study called Histories of the Hanged, which is based entirely on the trials um, of Mau Mau rebels. Um, uh, 1,090 of whom were sent to the gallows, uh, data and Camathe being uh, among the most famous. And these trials provided such rich textual um, historical archives, archival material uh, for Anderson in, in that book. Uh, and yet they started talking about how difficult it was working in these archives, how partial they were, how often the evidence for a trial isn't kept. And they started talking about how they had both seen glimpses of what they thought was the trial of Dayda and Kamathi, but then either been removed or kicked out of the high court or not allowed to um, investigate further uh, into this. And this sort of sparked my interest. Um, And with my experience with the Elijah Masinde trial transcript, I I decided, well, I have a couple days in Nairobi, so why don't I go to the high court? I haven't been, you know, I I hadn't worked in that archive. uh, So I was curious to see what they had. Um, But also I thought, you know, sometimes just asking again can uh, lead to a different result. Uh, In the summer of 2008, I had, I think I had three or four days left in Nairobi. The first day I went to the Supreme Court and I was escorted to the head archivist. And they told me to bring um, official letter from my university. At the time it was the University of Cambridge. So I went online and found some letterhead for University of Cambridge and mocked up a letter. So I was a graduate student, so we don't have letterhead. <laughs> and uh, I brought it uh, uh, to, to the head archivist uh, the same day. So she was very well aware that, that I was uh, uh, doing this uh, across the street from the high court. Um, and she said, okay, come back tomorrow, uh, and next day I was brought into this labyrinthine uh, maze of underground uh, tunnels where they keep archives sort of stacked, trial transcripts stacked from floor to ceiling, mm-hmm. um, and I was brought into a room, and the person told me to wait. Uh, they said the junior archivist wasn't there, so I had to go back, and the next day I came back, was led into a room, everyone left the room, and I looked on the table, and there was something that for all intents and purposes, looked like the trial of data Kamathi, So I've got very excited, um, started copying all the file I could, um, started making copies. I'd heard stories about people having caught glimpses of the file and then it disappearing the next day. So I really wanted to to, um, take up as much of it as I could. And I was able to get a full um, record of it and was really taken in by not only um, the fact that this this had been this missing part of the archive for so long, but also this remarkable story uh, that the that the trial transcript told. It reads like a political thriller. Um, there's a great chase scene. there's there's intrigue. there's um, this uh, legendary uh, conflicted character uh, at the center of it um, and, uh, different forces sort of fighting it out in this battle. Um, and so the, the narrative that I was getting from the trial not only was completely new and elements I'd never heard before, and certainly elements that I thought would be quite shocking, um, uh, if they were revealed, but also just this amazing, um, story. As I, you know, sort of went back home and looked at the document more closely, consulted legal experts, as well as other scholars, artifacts in the document became. Clear to me that this was not an authentic original copy.
0: Okay, well, let's stop for a minute. I mean, so what are you looking at here? So, are these like sort of uh, records of interrogations or kind of narratives of police reports, or what kind of material is in this uh, trial transcript that was given you at the at the uh, High Court in Kenya?
1: So, in two thousand eight, what I was given was a stack um, of single sheet paper that was purported to be um, and appeared to be, um, a transcript of the trial proceedings. So not the evidence, not the interrogation, not the capture notes. Um, none of that material, just exactly what happened during the trial. So um, like,
0: like, uh, cross examinations and things like that?
1: Exactly. The, the state presenting its case, uh, the defense presenting, uh, its counter case, witnesses being called, uh, Kamathi presenting his own case, um, uh, and, and the judgment um, of the the judge uh, who was presiding over the case at the end so that's what i was that's what i was looking at um, and uh, certainly at that point it already seemed to contain more than i had ever known before um, or had ever seen talked about before um, but uh, as i mentioned looking at it more closely there were artifacts that clearly meant this was not an authentic original document from the time period the biggest red flag which i should have noticed right away but you get caught up in the excitement of the moment, especially as a a young graduate student, was that at the top of the paper, it said Republic of Kenya. And in 1956, there was no Republic of Kenya. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Indeed, many thought independence was another 30, 40 years off. Um, So this was clearly a document that had been created in the post-colonial period. Uh, The type of paper, the type of typescript was clearly not uh, in line with what I had seen of other child documents at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were so many artifacts and typos and omissions and elisions in the uh, document that I could not be certain um, how accurate it was. My assumption was that perhaps. Uh, the document at some point, uh, the original document was being destroyed or being taken out of the archives and someone had rushed to transcribe it. Um, the, the errors that I was noticing, the typographical errors, seemed to me to be auditory transcription errors, um, mm-hmm. possibly someone reading it out and someone trying to type it out and maybe uh, maintain a record. But I, in all honesty, have no idea. And that document after 2008 also disappeared. Mm -hmm. So I have copies of it, but the one that was in the archive that I accessed disappeared by the next year.
0: Did it disappear? It was just no, they would not release it to anybody anymore.
1: So that's, it's a matter of trust. I I worked very closely with uh, the Supreme Court in this period. And when I get to the period of actually finding the authenticated trial, uh, worked very, very closely with them. I, I believe that the archivists I was working with were incredibly genuine. If mm-hmm. there were other forces that that um, disappeared the file, I I, I I am not aware of them. Um, but I believe that the people I was working with had a great deal of integrity and uh, desired the the file to be found just as much as I did.
0: Which is interesting. I mean, so, but someone must have decided that it's no longer going to be
1: or available. things get misplaced. I've seen it happen uh, many yeah. times where things yeah. just a, a box gets put in the wrong space. These are chaotic archives often. Um, uh, this is in the basement where they still hold prisoners. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is this is uh, uh, and actually the, the chief justice at the time, now is the former chief justice, Willie Matunga, who I worked with very closely, had been kept in one of those cells during the um, era of the Moy presidency. Um, and so it, I, I, you, it's hard to trace whether it's hard to believe that the document would have been missing for that long, considering how many copies would have been made originally and how many different places they should have been kept.
0: Right. They should have been
1: kept at the high court, at the court of appeals, uh, as well as in perhaps sites in London. Um, and so it's hard to believe that all of those copies would go missing.
0: Is that what you started to think after realizing that this was a somehow not the original copy, how did you come to think that there must have been more copies uh, floating around out there? Or at what point did you realize that?
1: Well, speaking to, to people like Dave Anderson, who's worked so thoroughly in these kind of archives with these trials, mm-hmm. uh, eight to nine copies w- was common okay. um, of the original transcripts. Um, and so, uh, and, and he kind of explained to me the various places he, he might find them. Uh, and so I, you know, I was sort of going on this, yeah, as you said, lateral search, um, looking around these different archival spaces in Kenya, uh, and not having a lot of, um, success after, uh, after that original file, um, uh, proved not to be, um, uh, authentic. Um, and so eventually, um, in 2015, Um, I happened to be in London doing research for another project and um, visiting friends as well in Cambridge. And so I decided to follow the the trail and see if there was any archival remnants from the two lawyers who um, served as Camathi's defence for his final appeal to the Privy Council in London. Um, So the the lead lawyer was a very famous uh, lawyer named Sir Dinglefoot. Uh, and his archives happened to be at Cambridge, so while I'm there visiting friends, it was very easy for me to pop over to Churchill College and talk to the archivist there. Uh, his archives were under a hundred-year closure, which means that anything in his files would, from the 1950s, would not be able to be viewed until the uh, 2050s. Uh, and but I talked to the archivist and he and looked at the hand guide and looked what, at the material they had cataloged as being in his archives, and it didn't seem. Uh, and from talking to the archivist, it didn't seem like uh, the the trial transcript would be there. He certainly would have been sent a copy of the trial transcript to craft his appeal, but it didn't seem like he kept it in his personal documentation. And so I went to his second lawyer, his, his sort of junior lawyer at the time, uh, Ralph Milner, and his archives had only recently uh, been released uh, to uh, the Institute of Commonwealth Studies um, at the Royal Senate Library. And I went and sort of started talking to the archivist, and he said no one had looked at Ralph Milner's archives yet. And he was a very famous anti-colonial lawyer, worked across the British colonial uh, world defending uh, various nationalists and trade unionists in the period, wrote on Soviet justice, and uh, was seen as sort of an activist lawyer in the time, Uh, and started looking through the boxes of his files, and there it was just staring me in the face. And it it was it had the proper file name. It, it had the embossed seal of Her Majesty as a Supreme Court of Kenya uh, on the front. It was the right kind of paper. It had marginal notes from both the judge and Ralph Milner, lawyer, which was quite remarkable. And it also had uh, copies of the evidence Uh, most of the pieces of evidence that were submitted by by the state, which is incredibly rare to find for any colonial court case. Those are often destroyed after colonial court cases. Uh, And so this was just the most remarkable um, discovery. Uh, And in his long career, after defending um, dozens and dozens of anti-colonial figures across the British Empire, the Kamathi file is the only one that was in his archives in its complete form. So uh, it makes me wonder if he himself, uh, he's passed now, but wonders wonder if he himself saw some sort of value in this particular transcript um, because he didn't keep any others. He really uh, held on to just this one. Um, so it was quite a fascinating uh, find. We were then able to coordinate. I
0: mean, your your historian's heart must have sort of dropped when when you realized what you were looking at.
1: I mean, it's terrifying. You you just you <laughs> assume it's going to be taken away from you at any moment. So I'm uh-huh. madly taking photos of every page. I paid them to do a, a proper high resolution scan of each page, which I often never do because you can just take photos of archives. Right. But it's the cheaper way to do it. Um, but I wanted to make sure I had this archive in multiple forms. I put it on multiple different hard drives. Um, uh, I, I made sure to have copies in various places because it was it just seemed like such a precious document at this point that really existed nowhere else. Mm -hmm. Um, And at that point, I was able to coordinate with people in Kenya, particularly at the Supreme Court, and we had the file repatriated to Kenya. Um, So there are copies available now in Kenya at the Supreme Court and at the um, uh, Kenyan National Archives. And how did
0: the Kenyans, I mean, in in particular, the people you were working with, what was their reaction uh, when you gave them this news? What were their questions for you?
1: You know, there weren't really any questions. It was just the excitement. Yeah, it was just excitement, and really not even about the content, just about having this piece of the history. Um, uh, some might see some of the aspects of the trial um, as count contrary to the national image that's projected about Mao Mao or about uh, Kimathi himself. Um, uh, but that didn't. That wasn't really. It didn't seem to be a concern. It was more. <laughs> this was. This was about a lost piece um, that was important in and of itself, regardless of what kinds of um, uh, historical evidence or credence we can give to it. Um, and as soon as I found it, all of a sudden, I arrived back in Nairobi a, f- uh, a few weeks later, um, and Stanley Mutumu, who uh, Mutuma, who is a blind young archivist at the mm. Supreme Court, calls me and says, I've found something. I think you're going to want to come down to the court. So I go down, and he has two boxes filled with all of the originals of the evidence from the trial. Still not a copy.
0: That was in, but the evidence was in the Kenyan, uh, in the Supreme Court archive.
1: He found it in the basement of the appeals court. The
0: appeals court. Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. But these are, this is uh, sort of bonus material. This is material we never see. So in in the book, I'm able to um, reproduce an image of uh, Dedan Kimathi's x-ray of his bullet wound. And this x-ray proves that the home guard, incontrovertibly proves, the judge uh, agrees with this during the trial, proves the home guard who shot him um, uh, was lying in his testimony. The trajectory of the bullet does not match his story. Mm -hmm. Um, And the x-ray is in this pile of documents. What was also fascinating was in these two boxes was my letter from 2008 my own mm-hmm. letter on, on Cambridge Letterhead. And so there was
0: some active use of this of these boxes absolutely. In the, during the, all that period.
1: And I know multiple people who have submitted requests for this file, but there were only two requests in that box. Mine and uh, the late uh, populist politician, J.M. Karayuki. Mm-hmm. Very strange company to find myself in. Um, and uh, so obviously these boxes had been utilized since um, this period. This hadn't been some forgotten thing, but uh, all of a sudden we had original letters written by Kimathi in Gikuyu, the actual uh, original letters. We had receipts from what the the colonial state reimbursed his lawyer um, uh, for his travel expenses. Uh, This kind of material. We had his uh, execution warrant, which proves for the first time that he was, according to this record, buried in Kamiti Prison. And that has been a long point of contention, and people are still trying to uh, find his body. Indeed, a couple of months ago, there was another news story that that his body had been discovered again, and of course it turned out to be uh, a hoax uh, again. Mm -hmm. Um, But we now have a document that actually says that that is where he he was buried after his execution. So this material was completely... um, uh, This was material I wasn't even hoping to find. And all of a sudden the floodgates were opening.
0: Well, that's what my question is, is is, do you think that your discovery in London and rumors or communication of that to Kenya uh, had something to do with the sudden release of these other boxes?
1: It's difficult to say. Um, uh, There's sort of multiple layers at work in terms of who has access, who's doing the looking, who's allowed into certain spaces. Um, right. There's even a joke I sh- shared with uh, Dave Anderson and and Stacey Hind that I was given more access because I was at Cambridge and not Oxford, and the people at the Supreme Court liked <laughs> the, Cam- the Cambridge historians more than the Oxford historians. <laughs> I mean, this is a r- ridiculous kind of conjecture, but it but maybe it did play a role. Who knows. Um, and so it, it's hard to tell if if maybe this was some sort of you know releasing out. Right. Which which happens mm-hmm. sometimes when when states are faced with, you know, mounting evidence, they just kind of release everything and hope that the flood kind of overwhelms the narrative. Um, or if if this was the the dogged work of particular archivists who just kept right. looking yeah. and looking and looking and eventually were able to, you know, you know, um, uh, 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 get into those corners where perhaps they hadn't been allowed in a couple of years previous.
0: Wow. So we now we have this huge uh Kind of pile of, of documents related to something that had been kind of hidden and, and mysteriously uh, un- inaccessible for years and years and years, and yet surrounding all of this material, there had been an ongoing kind of mythology built up about Mao Mao and about Deran Kimathi in particular. To try, what is Mao Mao? How should we even start to understand that? And in, in particular, in relation to this. Trial in this particular character, Dedan Kimathi.
1: That's a very big question, yes. And I almost hesitate to answer because I'm not a Mau scholar by by training or by 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 the field that I work in. I just have happened to stumble into the to, to the yeah. middle, of, middle of the fray. Um, well,
0: what did you find? So you you had to read through this uh, transcript, yep. And what's going on in that transcript? And uh, and then and then maybe we can get to what some of the big names in the field say about it because they're also in your book. Um, What did you find in this transcript?
1: It was one of the first things I needed to do was to enlist uh, people who'd been working in the field uh, um, uh, for a long time to to contribute to this volume, because I knew myself, I did not have necessarily the background or the skills to analyze it from all the angles that it deserved. Um, The Mau Mau remains one of the most hotly contested um, aspects in African history. Uh, it has elicited some of the, the, the most heated debates uh, among historians in terms of, and, and among the Kenyan public uh, uh, in terms of how it should be remembered, what kind of movement it was, um, whether it was fighting for national independence or was more of an internal um, struggle within the Kikuyu to define you know, who should have legitimacy and authority and power and land, especially uh, within this community. Um, what kind of anti-colonial vision uh, Mao Mao had. It was a very diverse movement. And indeed, that's the thing that struck me the most uh, from the trial. uh, And certainly something that John Lonsdale, one of the uh, most important scholars uh, on the moral economy of Mao Mao, uh, writes about in his chapter in the book, is the way in which, uh, as John puts it, uh, the trial and the way Dedan Kamathi approached his defense in the trial, put the internal moral arguments of the Mao Mau at the forefront of his mm-hmm. defense. So you got to see the fissures, you got to see the breakdown, you got to see the different uh, ways in which Kamathi positioned himself as a leader or not uh, at different points uh, within the movement. So the Mao Mau rebellion um, has come to absorb a lot of the anxieties um, and different kinds of political voices at the time in the 1950s uh, in Kenya. It is a movement that starts in central Kenya and is predominantly uh, made up of people who come from the Kikuyu um, ethnic community, uh, as well as the Embu and the Meru. Um, and yet it has this sort of larger um, uh, um, life in terms of uh, being seen in the post-colonial period as kind of the, the freedom fighters, the, 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 the liberation movement. Um, so while it did not succeed in gaining uh, independence, uh, and while it's militarily defeated by the British, uh, and that military defeat is really marked by the capture uh, and trial uh, and execution of Daydan and Kamathi, while it doesn't succeed militarily, it's still seen as kind of um, a repository for the lost dreams um, of independence. And Kamathi certainly, um, in the public imagination has come to absorb uh, those lost dreams of what independence could have brought um, uh, if a more revolutionary process had happened uh, in the transition from uh, colony to independent nation-state. Um, and the if you look up in any search engine, the trial of Dada and Kumathie, which is, of course, what you'd sort of expect the book to be called... Um, but we, we sort of couldn't call it that, because if you look that term up, that, that phrase up in any um, database, what you'll find is the very famous uh, 1976 play by uh, uh Gitae Mugo and Mubiwa Chiongo. And that was a landmark play um, for the ways in which it used a colonial trial, the trial of Dedan Kamathi, which uh, as I said, the archive of which had was not available to imagine a kind of argument against not only the colonial state, but the continuation of colonial governance practices into the post-colony. Um, and so that was also very important for me in this book is to get uh, uh, Micherian and Ngugi, uh to uh, contribute in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, at first, I was worried that they might see it in a kind of um, adversarial way um uh, often there's sort of this tension that that uh, uh emerges between um what uh people imagine to be historical fact and what people imagine to be historical imagination yes. um and especially literary versus kind of you know the the craft of the historian um and indeed that's not the way uh I look at the trial at all i saw the archival trial as another chapter not the mm-hmm. official chapter right another chapter in the way in which Kamathi can be imagined, Kamathi can be presented. Colonial trials are performative in nature. Um, and uh, one of Kamathi's uh, allies, but also sort of rivals uh, for leadership in the Mao Mao rebellion was General China. And when he was put on trial for his life, uh, uh, he, he, uh, he, he made, he said this great phrase that he wrote about in his memoir when he was recalling the trial. And he said, whether anyone tells the whole truth in a court, which is trying him for his life is doubtful. At least I doubt it. <laughs> and he himself nope. had been put on trial for, um, uh, uh for his participation in the Mao Mau rebellion sentenced to be executed, but then um, got a stay of execution um, based on an agreement with the colonial state to negotiate surrenders um, with remaining Mau, Mau f- uh, forest fighters uh, and so that points to the fact that you know there 's some self reflexivity about the fact that this is a performance uh, yeah. both on the part of the state and on the part of the the defendants uh, and so what i 'm interested in is not what is true versus what is false, but how this document can reveal different sides of, of this story um, and the way in which Kamathi spoke into the archival record, uh, not only about the Mao Mau movement, but also about his own defense, uh, uh, how he was um, uh, articulating an argument to the colonial state about why he should not be sentenced to death for leading a movement that he uh, self-described as leading.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, trying to read through just directly through the trial transcript is a pretty daunting task because it's you have to be able to follow the ins and outs of of multiple cross examinations of multiple reports and documents. Um, is there a particular passage in this 200 page uh, transcript that's printed in your book that stands out as being uh as, as, as illuminating something important or whether a contradiction or something uh, historical that's been missed in this memory.
1: So it's, it, yeah, it's, it was a question that we had when we were putting together this book. Should we cut out some of the repetition or mm-hmm. some of the varying stories in the archival document to make it a little bit more readable? Um, and I resisted that because yeah. that's part of historical work is weeding through. And one of the most fascinating aspects of this trial is the fact that you hear the same story told slightly differently multiple times mm-hmm. um, about his capture in particular. And navigating through that is, is, a, is, is the work of historians, is, is, is how we um, um, come to make meaning. They, documents don't just speak to us unmediated. Uh, we have to uh, put on our interpretive uh, lenses in order to, to, to pull that information out. So I thought that was really important to present in its fullness. Otherwise, it would have been my version of the trial. Right. Um, yeah. And certainly I put annotations in there, so so there's a bit of my voice uh, involved in the annotations, but the actual trial transcript, even in the strange layout of some of the transcript, we tried to reproduce mm-hmm. um, uh, as accurately as possible. Um in terms of the particular aspects that stand out, uh, there's a couple moments that, that, that stand out to me. Uh, one would be um, the f- uh, first time Kamathi speaks to yeah. the court. The very first time he speaks is to uh, indicate to the court that uh, he cannot continue with the, the proceedings on the very first day of the trial because he's in such pain from his recent surgery due to the bullet wound, which was only mm-hmm. um, uh, a month before. Um, and there's a there's a real um uh, desperation in that moment that's quite that's quite striking. Um, but the first time he's able to actually speak and tell his own story, he is remarkably um forthcoming but also concise in what he mm-hmm. says. Uh, and that uh, struck me. He told a very personal narrative, which was I guess not sort of what I was expecting, mm-hmm. um given that he was uh, known as such a statesman. um he created the Kenya Parliament. Uh, in the forest. He, they would burn their identity cards from the colonial state and create their own identity cards. He had stamps with his, with his um, moniker, Field Marshal, Data and Kamathi, uh, made so that he could stamp his letters and have this kind of officialdom uh, around the documentation that he was producing. And yet on trial, he was very much so presenting a very personal narrative um, and in particular told a very personal story about struggling with epilepsy since he was a child.
0: Yeah, um, and
1: that that was quite a striking moment in the trial. That's certainly something I had never heard associated. Yeah.
0: The fact that he had epilepsy was not something that was a part of the historical record up to this moment.
1: No, and um, uh, the only defense witnesses that are brought in to speak on behalf of Kamathi are brought in to speak on that issue. His mother, one of his friends who witnessed an epileptic fit, um, the doctor who talked about his medical condition. Um, they're all geared towards this and the the reason this is so central is um because it's part of his defense that he was actually surrendering at the time of his arrest and that he ha- suffered an epileptic fit due to the trauma of the shooting mm-hmm. and that that's why his his, his his he believed he had said that he had come in to surrender um and that if he hadn't it was because of an epileptic fit so This evidence was crucial to his own defense um, of why he had a weapon and bullets, which under emergency laws uh, in colonial Kenya uh, in the 1950s was uh, uh, carried with it the sentence of uh, the death penalty, just having bullets on you, just having a weapon on you. But for surrender purposes, you had to bring your weapons in order to gain uh, access to amnesty.
0: Yeah, well, let's back up because that—that is the so it's illegal to carry weapons under the state of emergency. But the British had put out a notice that people need should turn in their weapons if they have them, and the means by doing that was a particular sort of ritual of surrender by holding up some green leaves or something like that. And jeez,
1: <laughs> yeah, the green leaves and also the uh, surrender um, leaflet which uh, Kamathi claimed had been destroyed. And much of the documentation that was said to be on him had been destroyed in, in torrential rains. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, it, the, that, that's the rainy season in Kenya in, in, in October um, when he was captured. So, so that's very possible, probable. But also let's remember General China's uh, <laughs> line that it's doubtful when, whether anyone on trial for their life tells the whole truth. So it's hard to know whether he was intending to surrender um, uh, however, the story that the, the, um, home guard tell of how they came to capture him, uh, does not match the evidence and, um, especially how he comes to be shot, um, belies, uh, certain, um, aspects of, of, of logic in terms of, um, uh Kimathi's own story about trying to say that he was surrendering and then being shot by the home guard who wanted to ensure that he would get the reward.
0: Okay. And there was also what's interesting is in bringing in this question of um whether he had epilepsy and how that might have affected him. There are some other when we get into the the commentary by some of the different authors you invited, they comment on that and what that might mean within uh, a Kikuyu cultural context, uh, let alone what it means in the terms of the trial. Um, can you say anything about that?
1: Yeah, that was an aspect I was hoping to actually have a contributor speak directly to. Um, Mm -hmm. and we, we approached, um, a few people, but, uh, you know, due to lots of factors weren't able, and I hope it's something that someone else picks up in their own research. Um, but it certainly, um, there certainly is, uh, evidence that you know, epilepsy is a highly stigmatized disease, disorder, in, in mm-hmm. um, not only in the colonial period but also still contemporarily in, in Kenya. Um, it is, it, Kamathi himself says it's what the Kikuyu called the devils,
0: yeah. having
1: the devils, um, and uh, is associated with um, ideas around witchcraft, ideas around um, insanity, but also ideas around prophecy. Yeah. Um, and so there's multiple different ways in which um, uh, local traditions interpret um these these fits, sometimes as a sign of a leader and sometimes as a sign of um someone who is mentally um unsound. And in this court case, they were not specifically not making a claim to insanity. They were not trying to mount a defense of insanity. Um yeah. the only reason the epilepsy evidence comes in is to explain why his surrender uh was not clearly articulated. Um, to to his captors. Um, okay. and so it, it is it is um, one of the aspects um, that comes out of the trial that I think needs further research and needs um, someone else to take up the mantle. I think there's a couple of areas in, that the book um, raises that certainly have opened up new um, uh, fields uh, for for research in the future that we, we we sort of need to to learn more about. Um, well,
0: what what's what's another one?
1: Another one I was hoping to have uh, in the book, but due, you know, due to the, the, the nature of trying to put together an edited volume and keeping all the authors on the same page and everyone having the time, the right time commitments to uh, the, the publication deadline, uh, was the gender aspect. Mm-hmm. So John Lonsdale writes about this a little bit. Um, uh, certainly it's something that he's studied in the history of the moral economy of Mau Mau, how um, uh, gender figures, gender and generational debates figure quite prominently uh, in Mau Mau thought. Um, so he he kind of mentions it, but there's a lot of rich detail in the trial and also just in Kimathi's own life um, that speak to a kind of gender politics that I think could use a lot more examination. Um, his mother's testimony I found quite compelling uh, mm-hmm. in the trial, but it's quite short. And then Time magazine publishes this article depicting her as this gnarled old woman spitting on the ground in front of the, the, the courthouse. And this defies all of the oral accounts of her kind of staunch um disposition outside the courthouse. Yeah. Uh, and so I think there's 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 aspects there that that deserve um investigation, but also the constructions of masculinity and, and honor um yeah. that go on uh within the within the trial. I think there's there's more room to explore those those topics as well.
0: Okay. Um, well, let me throw a couple. Uh, so you have, you know, a series of uh, really great essays, as well as your very insightful introduction to this transcript to help uh, frame it, and, and that's all very necessary. Let um, so, yeah, me let me start with this, and then move uh, move to another quote by Lonsdale. But um, Simon Gikandi's uh, essay on Dedan Kamathi, the floating signifier and the missing body, and you've. You've alluded to kind of both of those aspects before, and he kind of concludes his essay saying, Kimati embodies the tensions that define Kenyan society. He is most forceful when he is a catalytic conduit for the contradictions uh, that others consider as imminent in neocolonial society. And the post-colonial state fears the haunting of the past or return of the repressed, uh, which is, he's actually kind of almost citing, I think, um, Achille bembe's essay on, on mm-hmm. the archive and uh the way the archive is kind of filled with ghosts that uh are need to be contained in some ways mm-hmm. uh, and this is a very much a story of such a ghost uh, coming back to haunt us and then let me turn from there so we we have this question of this floating signifier this this figure that has all this you know meaning that is built up around him uh, over mm-hmm. the course of a half century or more uh, um and then Lonsdale kind of concludes uh, with the comment, uh, no civil war has ever simply aligned the honest, earnest champions of the people against the crooked, heartless servants of despotism. Opponents often turn out to be their own twins. And if we are to enter a past uh, country in its own context with its own tragic set of unanswerable questions, then we have to subvert a subversive history as well. Um, Mm -hmm. So we have a floating (laughs) signifier and then we have the historian's task, uh, which, if they're going to be honest, is going to have to uh, maybe cut down uh, some of those significations. And you've alluded to that already, but what are these authors that you, that you included in this volume telling us? Maybe let's start with those two. Um,
1: Absolutely. Uh, Simon Gikandi is um, a preeminent scholar uh, and uh, post-colonial theorist and literary critic. Um, uh, And he was a a very big supporter um, uh, of the book from the beginning. Uh, I remember having uh, dinner with him when we got some of the contributors uh, together uh, for a meal. And he said that the map, that we'd created uh, for the book um, of the area where uh, Kimathi was captured was the first time he'd seen the town he was born in on a map. Huh. Uh, and indeed we did have to, to, to figure that out and because we wanted all the places mentioned in the trial to be captured in this map. And he said it was the first time he'd seen uh, the place of his birth on a map and that that was very exciting to him. And that was quite fulfilling for me being someone who comes from uh, uh, working on mapping. A yeah. um, <laughs> strange connection to my, my other work. Um, his chapter on the floating signifier I see as a critical bridge um, mm-hmm. in some ways between um, uh, the historical imagination and the historical archive uh, and understanding the ways in which um, uh, the elusiveness of Kamathi as a figure uh, uh, is exactly what allows it to, con- to retain this power um, both for, um, uh, those who might want to suppress the image and for those who want to herald it as, um, as a prefiguring a kind of new revolution. Um, and he speaks to this, what he calls historiographic anxieties, uh, Mm -hmm. that are contained within the record. And in our own conversations, we, we had a we had a little bit of a joke about um, historian and our, historians and our need for footnotes <laughs> and our obsession with footnotes. He's like, I don't need to footnote this stuff. Um, but we were talking about various elements and, you know, sort of his own experience and his own reading of different literary texts, we sort of were able to match up with different archival uh, uh, records and stories that we'd read. Uh, and he was pleasantly surprised to find they matched up so well. (laughs) Um, And that's really one of the things I come away with in his piece is that his piece allows us to see um, the multiplicity um, uh, of meanings that have been um, uh, projected onto um, Kamathi and his legacy uh, and why it's so important to, to, uh, as he calls it, dislocate the truth claims. Um, mm. of, of different historical narratives. And, I, and I, I find that a really important call. Uh, John Lonsdale, being a historian, takes a slightly different approach. And the uh, passage you quoted where he talks about subverting subversive histories is a specific callback to wa uh, Tiong'o and Michere Mugo's amazing foreword
0: yeah. that
1: they graciously provided for the text. And there was debate as to whether or not to start the book with this foreword. Uh, because it kind of says our work is following the path of a colonial fabrication, Mm. Uh, that the trial is a farce, um, and that the trial document serves us no purpose because it's a colonial invention. Uh, uh, And yet it opens up all these interesting dialogues, and indeed Ngugi and Michede point out numerous aspects of the trial that I found fascinating as well, that that, that point out the the contradictions within the performance of colonial justice itself. Um, I think what Lonsdale is speaking to there is uh, a reminder that um, there is a danger in the romanticization yeah. um, of resistance, uh, of history, of these kinds of historical figures. Um, uh, certainly, there is lots of evidence that speaks to um, many uh, Mau Mau uh, 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 followers um, finding Kimathi. To be increasingly dictatorial, increasingly autocratic in his rule. He had a very strict code of conduct, very strict ideas about moral discipline, which he did not necessarily follow himself. Um, And indeed what's so striking um, about the image of his capture that is presented by him and by the prosecution is just how alone he is in that moment. He no longer has any followers. He no longer has his brother. He no longer has um, his uh, forest wife. Um, he is completely alone. And that's the image that also resonates with the, the image that we use for the cover, which if you crop it just to his face is one of the most famously used images across Kenya and across Africa. Um, sort of a, the, the Che Guevara image uh, yeah. that gets put on all the, all the um, T-shirts. And when I asked Kenyan friends about the the image, and I have a t-shirt, so I wear it and I ask people about it, uh, none of them know it comes from his trial, from him sed- sitting in the docks. And when you zoom out, you can see he's got a blanket covering him, he's actually yeah. in um, hospital garb, and he's got handcuffs on his wrists, yeah. um, which is not the full image, right? And so this kind of truncating of the image is part of that process between what John Lonsdale and Simon Gikhani both were arguing. This ability to make him floating, his head floating mm. uh, in that way um, speaks to what, what you can then project. So people have often said that he has a really stern and resolute look on his face, but when they see the whole photo, they think it's more um, sad, despondent, yeah. uh, and perhaps uh, still under the influence of drugs and uh, uh, the medical conditions he was suffering from. So again, that kind of speaks to to those aspects. Um And uh, uh, that nuance might not serve popular contemporary movements in the same way as the heroic romanticized image would.
0: Yeah. Well, let's uh, leave it there for for this book. Um, And maybe just to close up for the New Books Network, we like to ask what you're working on now or what comes, what are you looking forward to at this point?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, well, I'm looking forward to hopefully getting tenure. Um, <laughs> I'm, up for, right. tenure. I'm right. up for tenure this year, so we'll see. Um, I'm actually really looking forward to, in all seriousness, uh, in two weeks, I'll be in Kenya doing two book launches for the Kimathi book in Kenya, one in Nyeri, where uh, Kimathi was from, and one in Nairobi. And oh. this has been a long time coming, and I'm, I'm very excited that it's coming together and it's... Uh, uh, members of Kamathi's family are going to come. The Kamathi Foundation, members of the judiciary, members of the scholarly community. Um, so I'm really excited um, uh, uh, to be able to, to to bring the book back in um, in that way.
0: That's really exciting. When? What is the date of uh, the event in Nairobi?
1: The Nairobi event is on February 21st, and the Nyeri event is uh, February 18th, which is the anniversary of his death.
0: Okay, so. If you can make it to Nyeri, February eighteenth. If you can make it to Nairobi, February twenty first. Where will it be in Nairobi?
1: In Nairobi, it'll be um, at the uh, uh, USIAU, uh, the US University of Africa, yeah. um, uh, in Nairobi, and in Nyeri at the Data Capacity University of Technology. Excellent. Um, okay. Which okay. has a, which has a specific Mau, Mau library, um, and so we'll be donating some of the books, but also. Um, uh, being able to invite members of the Mau Mau Veterans Association who actually took me on a tour of the, the site where Kamathi was captured. I was able to um, imagine and and sort of uh, uh, put the trial transcript into place and space um, uh, on the boundary of the uh, Aberdares Forest. So that was really uh, important to me. And so it'll be great to be able to invite them and, and honor them and their contributions to this. To this text. So that's next. Um, and the project I'm working on now is, uh, uh, builds off my, my earlier work and my interest in these kind of dissenting ideas around decolonization um, and is focuses on the alternative mappings of independence. Um, uh, during the period of 1950 to about 1976, uh, I'm looking at the multiple alternative ways that, that people imagined uh, decolonization could come, what forms it could come, who could claim sovereignty, how the colonial borders that had been imposed and and um, uh, uh, shifted the, the, the nature of political communities in Eastern Africa, how they could be changed and altered to reflect uh, communities' desires, and um, how those alternative projects and those alternative uh, uh, mappings of decolonization were uh, eventually subsumed uh, under the kind of triumphant narrative of, of the nation state. Um, but also looking at the ways in which that didn't erase those alternative, uh, constructions of community, uh, and the way they still persist today in the way people move across borders in the way people formulate kinship networks, um, in, uh, and in many of the, um, separatist and secessionist movements, we still, still see, um, unfolding, uh, in Eastern Africa.
0: Yeah. Well, that sounds fantastic. And, uh, we look forward to that work. I know you have a recent article in uh, the American Historical Review, AHR, that uh, if people want to get a sense of what your work is about currently. Well, let's wrap it up, and I thank you for your time, and uh, and I really look forward to these events uh, later this month, February 18th and February 21st in Nyerere and in Nairobi, Kenya, for the launching of this book. Uh, thank you, Julie.
1: Thanks so much, Paul.